Well, if you brought your Bible today, and I hope you did, would you go ahead and, and open it and find Luke 23? We've been working through this series that we've called Pray Like Jesus. We've been journey, journaling, journeying through the gospel of Luke and looking at various occasions where Jesus uh, pushed the pause button and prayed. Today we come to uh, the final sermon in the series, and if I'm not mistaken, the final time in the book of Luke where Jesus has prayed. So over the last few weeks, as, of, as we've looked at these prayers, we've seen that as he neared the end of his life and the, the end of his ministry on earth, Jesus' prayers have become more and more about praying in difficult times. More and more about praying in the midst of suffering and mistreatment and hardship. And so as we come to today's prayer, we're going to see that it's smack dab in the midst of that that Jesus prays. Now last week we, we kind of looked forward to this, uh, this, this this prayer, this mistreatment, this hardship and suffering that Jesus is dealing with today as he prays. And uh, we talked about the fact that this suffering, this hardship, wasn't just about the physical pain and the emotional pain, uh, the, the relational pain that he was enduring. But uh, we talked about the suffering Jesus was going to endure on the cross in light of this phrase that Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, when he says, Father, take this cup from me. We said this, this cup is the fury of God's anger for, poured full strength into the cup of God's wrath. So as we get ready to read the passage today, let's be clear that the suffering that Jesus was enduring wasn't simply physical. It wasn't just emotional. It wasn't just the, you know, the, the trauma of seeing all of his closest followers and friends abandon him. That was all part of it. But there was a deeper suffering, a deeper struggling going on. One that, Lord willing, we will never have to face. Because we can accept Christ's substitutionary death in the place of ours. So we don't have to face the end of our life with the threat of God's wrath being poured out on us, which it will be on those who don't accept Christ's death in their place. Okay, so no doubt, the agony that, we're gonna, uh, that Jesus experiences in the cross is deeper than physical and, 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 and emotional and, and relational pain. But there's incredible pain brought on through the natural level, through other humans involved with the story. And so as we read the passage today, um, I'm going to try to help us kind of experience that or, or maybe be involved with that uh, a little bit. Now, this is going to be way different than what we normally do when we read the scripture. I'm actually going to ask you to be involved. I'm going to give you specific prompts and if you would just humor me, okay, even if this isn't your cup of tea, even if this isn't why I come to church, if you would just maybe play along and do it, 
um, that would be much appreciated. It would help this pastor who got clobbered by a six-year-old at game night three times in a row. It would help me feel just a little bit better about myself. So would you be willing to maybe do that, be a little uncomfortable and, and kind of make the motions I ask you to make? Yep. That's a, thank you, Pastor Greg. <laughs> All right, good, good. Okay, Luke 23, we're starting at verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him, that him is Jesus, to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Now, let me ask you a question there. Jesus says, they don't know what they're doing. Who is the they that he's talking about? Let's continue to read the passage. And Luke paints a pretty graphic picture of who Jesus is talking about. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood Watching, So here's, here's the first two days that don't know what they're doing. We've got the, the Roman soldiers who were crucifying Jesus because they'd been instructed to. And if a Roman soldier doesn't follow orders, that's the end of that Roman soldier. So they have to do it. And then you've got the people who were standing watching this happen. And, and these, by the way, are the same people who just a few hours previously had stood in the streets and cried, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus. Jesus prays they don't know what they're doing. And the two next days we meet are the Roman soldiers and the crowd. So here's what I'm going to have to do. I'm going to ask you to do this section over here. Just tell me you don't know what you're doing by going like, we don't know what we're doing. That's pretty good. You don't have to talk to me, but the motion, that was good. That should be an emoji. <laughs> the ones who laugh know that it is. Okay. The people stood watching and the rulers, Luke says, even sneered at Jesus. What is a sneer? What's a sneer? Yeah, I wasn't exactly sure either, so I looked it up. Here's how the dictionary defines it. A contemptuous or mocking look, remark, or tone. So a contemptuous mocking look, remark, or tone. I don't know why I didn't know that. I am the father of teenagers after all. But we're going to have this section here. What I'd like for you to do is I'd like for you to give me your best contemptuous look. I want you to sneer at me. Well, no, 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 not me. Sorry, that wouldn't be right. Let's sneer at this guy. Sneer at him if you would. Come on, you can do better than that, guys. Find it. So okay, you tried. <laughs> the rulers even sneered at Jesus. They said he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. Let me just insert here. Clearly, the religious leaders didn't know what they were doing. You see, since Messiah was pronounced, predicted, prophesied in the Old Testament, his role had always been prophesied as saving the nation of Israel. The religious leaders should have known this. Messiah came to save Israel. And what are they doing? They're sneering at Jesus on the cross saying, save yourself. That's not why Messiah came. 
He didn't come to save himself. He came to save them, to save Israel. Clearly, they didn't know what they were doing. Verse 36, the soldiers also came up and mocked him. So the religious leaders sneered. The crowd didn't know what they were doing. The religious leaders sneered. The soldiers mocked. What does it mean to mock someone? Any guesses? Yeah, yeah, to tease, to laugh at in a, in a scornful or contemptuous manner. So however you want to do it, um, let's, let's give this guy again. You can just leave him up there. Let's give him our best mocking whatever. I want to see what you come up with. Mo- what, can, can we mock? Okay, I meant this section here. We're coming to your section in a minute, and it's not going to require talking. <laughs> Anything? You got any mocking for me? Oh, there we go. We got a finger on the nose. Good, good, good. Okay. You guys promised you would, well, I guess Greg promised he would help, and he did. Thank you, Pastor Greg. The soldiers, verse 36, came up and mocked him, and they did that while they were offering him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews... Save yourself. Jesus said this in his ministry, for the Son of Man came to seek and save himself. Right? That's what he said? No, he said, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Clearly, again, Luke is pointing us to the fact that even the soldiers didn't know what they were doing. As they mocked Jesus, they misunderstood who this guy was. He didn't come to save himself. He came to seek and to save those who needed saving, the lost. A doctor doesn't come for the healthy, but for the sick, he said. That's who Jesus came for. And they mock him because he's not saving himself. Verse 38, there was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at Jesus. What does it mean to hurl? (laughs) I see a bunch of this in this section over here. You guys already know what I'm going to ask you. It means to throw with great velocity. So here's what I'd like you to do. From a seated position, just hurl the whatever, just something imaginary at the Grinch there. Just go ahead and... All right, that that was pretty decent. Casey, I didn't see you hurl anything. Oh, that's pretty weak. For a football player who went undefeated this season, that's pretty... Oh, but he's the kicker, so we'll give that to him. Okay, good. They, uh, the, the, the one criminal hurled insults him at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. And so again, here the, Luke tells us the criminal did, didn't even know what he was saying. The, the one criminal assumed again that Jesus had come to save himself and that when he saved himself or as he saved himself, then he could save others. And that is not the way the Messiah works. That's not the way that God works. It's in sacrificing himself that Jesus saves others. And clearly that criminal had no idea what he was saying, or what he was doing. So catch what Luke is doing here. In this scene we just read, and you can get the Grinch off the screen now. In this screen, or in this uh, scene that we just read and kind of acted out together, every person in this scene, except one, has no idea what they're doing. Now this had to happen. 
Jesus had to die on the cross from before time started. This was the plan that God would give himself. He would sacrifice himself for his people. It had to happen, but it didn't have to happen like this. Every one of the characters of the actors of the people in this scene don't know what they're doing. And and Luke doesn't write it like that just so we'll assume that they're the only ones who don't know what they're doing. Luke writes it like that that so that we'll understand that we are part of the story. We're the soldiers. We're the crowd. We're the religious leaders. We're the, you know, we're the criminal hanging on one, uh, one side of Jesus. We too have sneered at Jesus and mocked Jesus and hurled insults at Jesus. And all the time we had no idea what we were doing. And of course, we read Jesus' response to all this in the middle of it. Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Now, my guess would be that most of us here aren't startled by that prayer. Probably because we've read it before. We've heard other sermons and Bible studies on it. If you've come to church for any amount of time, you've heard a lot of preaching on forgiveness. Matter of fact, just a few weeks ago, we looked at another prayer that Jesus prayed in Luke, the Lord's Prayer, in which he encouraged us, when you pray, ask for forgiveness to the same measure that you're willing to forgive others, because that's how God will forgive you. So so the, the idea that in his hour of greatest suffering, greatest pain, Jesus prayed for forgiveness, that doesn't really, probably doesn't really shock us. Maybe what should shock us, though, is that our point of greatest pain and our time of greatest hurt, it's not a prayer for forgiveness that we say. Instead, we tend to do the opposite. And we make vows. Now, I want to talk for a few minutes about vows. What are vows? I would suggest that there's two basic kinds of vows. There's healthy vows and there's destructive vows, healthy vows. Most of us in here are familiar with a healthy vow. As a matter of fact, the vast majority of us in here today at one point stood up probably in a church, but maybe not necessarily in a church building, but we stood up in front of our friends and family and we looked across at a person and we made healthy vows to them. We said, you know, I, Earl, take you, Sarah, to be my beloved wife, to have and to hold in sickness and health, for better, for worse, till death do us part. And we made healthy vows to someone we were marrying. Vows that were built on self-sacrifice, right? Because I'm willing, even when, you're, even when you're sick, I'm willing to move close. Even, even when we're um, fighting, I'm willing to apologize. I'm willing to sacrifice so that this relationship can be strong. Healthy vows are built on self-sacrifice, they're sacrificial commitments that we intend to keep for God's glory and for the other person's benefit. We don't stand up and make wedding vows because of what it's going to do for us. We make wedding vows because we're promising our life and everything we can for the good of this person. Now, as it turns out with healthy vows, that often brings good to us too, right? But that's not the reason that we enter into a, into a healthy vow, It's a sacrificial commitment we make for the good of another person because it'll glorify God and because it'll benefit that other person. 
That's one example of healthy vows. There's also destructive vows, and destructive vows are, are the opposite. Whereas a healthy vow is a self-sacrificing move, a destructive vow often comes after sacrifice has been imposed on us. When someone else has taken from us something that we didn't want to give, and so we're forced to give it away. Someone else has inflicted their will on us in a way that violated our will. So destructive vows often come when sacrifice has been thrust on us. And, and, and destructive vows aren't about helping another person. They're not about a good for someone else. They're about what's good for me. How can I protect myself? I want to talk about one specific kind of destructive vow. They're called inner vows. You have in your notes here kind of a definition. Inner vows are an internal, often unspoken promise made to oneself as a result of a painful experience. Inner vows are an internal, often unspoken promise that I make to myself when something painful happens to me to protect myself from that painful thing ever causing me harm again. Okay? Um, internal vows, and, and we've all made them, whether we realize it or not, we've all made them. Internal vows typically include a, an always or a never. For example, think of the child who hates to eat vegetables. I just made this one up. And his, 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 uh, his parents would force him to eat whatever vegetables were on his plate. And if he vomited any of them up, he would get twice the serving, okay? Cruel and unusual punishment. And so that child in a desire to not continue eating vegetables he doesn't like and bobbing them up and having to eat more, that child makes a promise to himself that when he has kids, they'll never have to eat anything they don't want to. Okay, this is an inner vow. When I have kids, I won't force them to eat vegetables, never. Or we'll always have pizza and popcorn for dinner, or, you know, whatever. They always have an always and a never. They're, they're often formed in childhood, although usually we don't realize that we're making this inner vow. So, so think about the child who grows up in a family without a whole lot of financial or material resources, and, and, uh, and, and, and she promises herself that she will always have nice clothes to wear. She'll always have money in the bank. She'll always drive a, you know, a, a car that works. Okay, these are, these are inner vows often made in childhood, sometimes often as children unknowingly, that are designed to protect us. But inner vows aren't just personal. They can also be, um, I'll use the word corporate, meaning it's not just individuals who make inner vows, but sometimes even a body of people can make an inner vow. So think, for example, of a church whose pastor went off the deep end and severely hurt the church, just caused a lot of pain. I mean, we see this happening all the time. Now imagine leaders around the leadership table or even just congregants, people in the congregation saying, if it's up to me, that will never, ever happen again. And the church has this inner vow that they've made to protect their church from being hurt against the likes of an irresponsible pastor. Okay, inner vows. We've, we've all made them at our times of, of greatest hurt and greatest 
pain and they seem like protective instincts. It seems like a good thing. That's a good thing to do to protect myself from harm. But really what happens, what happens is that they do the opposite. Instead of protecting us from hurt, they cause us more hurt. And so imagine a, imagine a girl, a young girl, who has significant health issues. And these health issues are so wearisome. They put so many boundaries and limits on her life that no young girl likes to have that she makes a commitment. When I have children, they will never struggle with health issues. That seems noble, right? But here's often how that would play out. This young girl grows up and she gets married and eventually God blesses she and her husband with children. And the children are born healthy, so she thinks things are great. But then as the children start to get older, she begins to realize that some, you know, some health issues are brought on by her choices. And so uh, she begins to force her children to only eat what she deems as healthy food. She begins to force her children to exercise. She'll use exercise as a leverage to get what she wants out of the kids. After you've exercised, you can do what you want to do. She, uh, you know, if, she's, if, if it even gets worse, then she withholds comments about her children's appearance. She doesn't tell them that they're handsome or that they're pretty or that they're beautiful. And if it's even worse, you know, she'll jab at them about their size, their shape, their weight. And so those children grow up and they get married, but they have this complex about their body shape, about their weight, about their size, which causes intimacy issues with their future spouses, which as it goes, begins to cause emotional and physical health issues for her children. Now that seems outlandish, like I just made up that perfect illustration, but that's real. It's in, the, it's in the studies. This girl made an inner vow thinking I'll protect myself and my children. And what that inner vow accomplished was just pain and more of the same for her and her children. I'm gonna ask for a, a volunteer to come up. Um, well, kind of. Zeke, come on up. <laughs> Actually, to be fair, I asked him and he did agree to be part of this. Um, Zeke, I'm gonna ask you to take a seat right here on the stool. And I'm going to give another illustration, another example, this time of a young boy. This isn't you, though. I want to be clear that everyone knows that. We're not talking about you. This is a young boy who was bullied, um, you know, when he was in elementary school, junior high. His, uh, um, his, his friends bullied him. His best friend betrayed him and told other people things about him that were, that were shared in confidence. Go ahead and turn around. And, and, uh, and so this young boy, in order to defend himself, go ahead and put your hands up like you're defending yourself. Good. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> They're not so bad, are they? They got their mocking and sneering out earlier, so you're okay. He made a vow. I'm never again going to allow anyone to betray me. And so to carry out that vow... He stopped having deep relationships. He just stayed personal with other people. And what he thought, oh, is that too tight? Okay. What he thought would help him actually harms him. His vow, his inner vow becomes a set of cuffs that don't allow him to enjoy deeper relationships. You see, internal vows seem like a good thing because on the surface it seems like it's going to protect me. But what it actually does is it handcuffs me, it chains me, it puts me in bondage to thoughts and behaviors that harm me. 
But what we have here in Luke 23 is the example of Jesus' prayer. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. In that prayer, we see why inner vows are so destructive and what we can do uh, to, to break free of the power of inner vows. Let's look at this prayer real quick. First of all, inner vows are destructive because it puts God's work on my shoulders. Let's look at Psalm 91 off the screen here. Because he loves me, says the Lord, who's speaking now? The Lord, God, right? I will rescue him. Who's doing the rescuing? Just so we're all clear, who's doing the rescuing? The Lord. Who's in pain? Somebody else, a person, a human. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. This is just one passage from scripture, but we see throughout scripture consistently that God has a role in our hurting, and it's to be present with us in it. It's to, to protect us, to, to heal us, to bandage our wounds, to provide peace and security, and to work for our good. Paul says in Romans 8, 28, for in all things, God works together for the good of those who love him. For in all things, the celebration days, And the times when we've been cut deeper than we thought we could ever be cut. But when I make an inner vow, even if I don't realize I'm doing it, I'm saying to God, I don't trust you. I don't trust you to do what you've said. I don't trust you to meet me in this pain and lead me through it. I don't trust you to bring healing. And so I'm going to put a wall around this part of my heart right here. You don't get my whole heart. You can have the rest, but, but I've got to protect myself from hurt in this part of my life, in this part of my heart. You don't get it. I'll take care of it. I've got this covered. We take what God says he will do and we put it on ourselves as if we're able to do what only all-powerful God can do. We say, I'm going to do this for myself and I'm going to do this by myself. God, stay out of here. I've got this. But notice what Jesus said when he's being hurt at the deepest part. He says, Father, forgive them. Jesus knew that where we're wounded the most, that's where God meets us. And that's where God does the work that God needs to do, that God wants to do, continue to work in our lives. Jesus didn't say, I forgive you. Jesus didn't say things that we might be more prone to say, like, see if I ever go in their temple again. Jesus didn't say, just you wait till I get to my kingdom. You ain't never coming in there. He said, Father. Jesus knew that it's our place of greatest woundedness that God shows up and does the most redemptive work that God does. Not only do inner vows cause us to uh, put God's work on our shoulders, but inner vows hold on to hurt instead of canceling it. Inner vows hold on to hurt instead of canceling it. You see, the very act of making and in keeping an internal vow does the exact opposite that we think it'll do. We think it'll protect us. But what it does is it handcuffs us. It handcuffs us to what caused that hurt. So imagine with me, if you will, a middle-aged Christian woman who 10 years ago was divorced from her husband 
because of a, who you know, was also a religious man, but he had a string of unrepentant sexual affairs and they weren't stopping. So they got a divorce. That was a decade ago though. Now this middle-aged Christian woman, um, uh, she's forgiven her ex-husband. She truly has forgiven him. They have an amicable relationship. He's remarried. She gets along not only with him, but with his new wife. And you know, there's no strain or tension there. I mean, in many ways, she has not just survived this divorce this, that was caused by the greatest pain that she's ever known. But she's really thrived. Except in one way. Her heart is starting to yearn again for the companionship of a man. And so she does what, she does what middle-aged women do. Um, she dips her toe back in the dating scene. And um, sure enough, she finds some interested suitors. But every man, eventually, she finds something wrong with. None of them are good enough. And so one day in a moment of exasperation, her adult daughter says to her mom, why do you find something wrong with every man who you go on a date with? And mom, in an unusual moment of self-awareness, says, I just don't know if I can ever trust a man enough to marry him again. Now, how can that be? How can a Christian woman who truly has forgiven her ex for all the pain that he did, who has an amicable relationship with him, how can she still be bound by this sense of untrust? It's because at the point of her greatest hurt, her greatest woundedness, she unknowingly made an inner commitment that she would never again trust a man who would hurt her like that. At his moment of greatest pain, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Forgiveness is the cancellation of a debt. It's as if Jesus prays from the cross, Father, wipe their debt. I mean, they're killing God, right? That's a pretty big debt. They're nailing Jesus to a cross. But Jesus says, Father, forgive their debt. Wipe it out of your books. Hit the delete key. Restore the program. Do, you, do whatever you need to do so that it's not there anymore. And take it out of my ledger too. Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. And when we make an inner vow, what we do is, is we leave some kind of issue that needs to be dealt with. But when we can announce and pray, pronounce and pray forgiveness, that becomes the bolt cutters that set the person free, that free us up from the vows we've made. Inner vows we think will protect us from future pain, but what they actually do is handcuff us to them, and forgiveness is the only way to break that. And then finally, inner vows falsely assume that we have all the information. Inner vows falsely assume that we have all the information. Consider with me, if you will, Eddie. Uh, Eddie's in, uh, let's, let's say he's in sixth grade, and um, <clears throat> Eddie is made fun of by everyone at school in his, in his middle school. Everyone makes fun of Eddie, and they make fun of Eddie because of the clothes he wears. You see, Eddie's family doesn't really have enough money to buy Eddie all the new stylish clothes, and so he comes to school in hand-me-downs, clothes that his mom picked up at the Salvation Army or that, you know, that came from, uh, you know, from his, his older cousins or, or his uncles and his dad. And, and, and not only are they like secondhand clothing, so they're worn and you know, they're just not stylish and cool, but 
Um, Well, I mean, they they are out of style. Nobody would ever wear those except Eddie. He has to. Because mom and dad won't buy him new clothes. And so Eddie's tired of being made fun of. And so Eddie makes this commitment as a teenager. And he knew. He knew what he was saying. He didn't know the effect it would have. But he made a commitment. When I am old enough, I will always have new clothes to wear. They'll always be in style. There'll be clothes that fit me well and that I like. And so now we see Eddie in his mid-20s, and, and Eddie has closet full, closets full of stylish clothes, some of them still with tags on them. And of course, he also has crippling credit card debt. Now, if you were to talk to Eddie's parents, they would say, it's not that we don't want to buy Eddie clothes. We understand. We wish we could. But there's only so much money to go around. The mortgage has to be paid, and we figured maybe we would want heat this winter, and and that dude eats like like he has a bottomless stomach. I mean, there's just not enough money to buy the clothes that we want to buy for him. But Eddie can't understand this. As a sixth grader, he just assumes that he sees the whole picture, and that his parents aren't taking care of him like they should, and so he is going to have to take care of himself You see, with inner vows, we don't see the whole story. We assume we do, but we don't. And so we make decisions, we make judgments based on what we we see and what we feel. And if we're to be honest, even what we see is colored by what we feel. And so we pass a judgment as if it were the case, and then we work to protect it. And we forget that even those who hurt us, even if it's not a matter of not having the right clothes, even those who hurt us, they have stuff going on in their background like we have going on in our background. How many of you times have you, have you been in an argument, and when the argument's over, you walk away and go, I don't even know why I, why did I say that? Why did I do that? Well, it's because there's processes running in your background that you don't know anything about. And if I've got them, then that person who hurts me has got them. An inner vow doesn't take all that into account. It doesn't leave room for grace and understanding and compassion, which is what it takes for forgiveness to do what it does. But notice what Jesus prays. He says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Inner vows don't allow for that. They don't allow for what's going through the other person's head. They, they don't leave space to consider the future, you know, that future behavior from a different person might come as, you know, from something very different. A, Uh, whereas forgiveness leaves room for grace and understanding and compassion to do their work, an inner vow says, no room, no space. I know the whole story. I'll take care of myself. So what do we do with this? Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. We often make inner vows. So so what do we do if we've, and and we all have, what do we do if we begin to realize or suspect that maybe there's something here in my heart that's causing me pain, even though it's designed to protect me? Real quick, you can take pictures of the screen if you want. You won't have time to write down everything that's not in your notes. I want to I offer some steps on how to deal with inner vows. Uh, before we go there, I have to say this. Some inner vows are so serious, they're so strongly held, that we have to talk with someone who knows what they're doing, a professional, if you will, to navigate them. So if you suspect that you or someone you know has inner vows surrounding any kind of childhood abuse, especially physical, sexual, severe emotional abuse, 
that needs, you need to talk to someone who, who can guide them through that. Those vows are often stronger than a pair of dollar store handcuffs that we used here today. Talk to someone. Pastor Greg and I have both worked with people and organizations who have experience helping people to cancel inner vows, and we'd be happy confidentially to point you in that direction to help you with that. But let's talk about some steps on what to do if you think there's some inner vows. First of all, anchor yourself to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Anchor yourself to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What you did to protect yourself, Satan has latched onto and now has, has built a stronghold, a foothold in your life. Satan doesn't go easily. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, Satan's a defeated foe. He may have a foothold or a stronghold in your life, but because of the cross of Christ, because of his death and resurrection, that can be canceled in your life. Jesus is stronger than Satan, even if Satan is on steroids. You got what I'm saying? So anchor yourself there. Remind yourself that you've been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, that that Jesus Christ raised from the dead, bringing not only himself to new life, but you to new life. And you could perhaps pray a prayer like this. Father, thank you for the cross of Jesus where my sin was canceled once and for all and Satan was defeated. Thank you also for the resurrection which brings new life and hope. I pronounce that Jesus is my Lord and confess that I need the same power that raised him from the dead to set me free. So first of all, anchor yourself to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Number two, trust God to meet you in your hurt. Trust God to meet you in your hurt. And this may be the hardest one. But remember that it's our, at our place of greatest woundedness where God does his most redemptive work. And so trust God as you expose that hurt, as you talk about that pain, especially that old pain. Trust God to meet you there and to do what God does best. Again, you might pray a prayer like this. Father, you know the pain from which I've been protecting myself. I no longer want to be tied to the inner vows that I've trusted to protect me. I want to trust you to heal and protect me. Please meet me in this pain and carry me through to healing. Trust God to meet you in your hurt. Number three, ask the Lord to bring to mind any inner vows you have made. You may not remember making an inner vow, or you may. You may say, I remember when I said I'm never going back there again. But even if you don't remember, ask God to bring any to mind. And then you may pray, Father, I ask that you show me any areas of my life where I've made inner vows. Please bring to mind words I've spoken or thoughts I've entertained that have chained me to behavior that I now want to change. Number four, confess and renounce any inner vows. As the Lord brings them to mind, trust that it's him bringing them to mind. Satan has no advantage in bringing them to mind. So trust that it's God and then cancel and, or excuse me, confess and renounce them. So you may pray, Father, I confess this inner vow that I made to protect me from this pain, will you please forgive me and cancel that inner vow? Would you please heal any wounding in my heart that came as a result of me making this inner vow? And then finally, the last step here that I would suggest, number five, ask God for the strength to live in light of the canceled vow. One more illustration. This one came from Pastor Greg. He shared it with me earlier this week, and I thought it was ingenious. Living with an inner vow is like walking with your shoes tied together, okay? Now, you can walk like this, right? You can put on tight shoes, and, and you can walk. I, I, didn't, I chose not to do that because I thought you all would sneer at me for real. You can walk like this, but the, the act of the longer you walk with tied shoes, the more you train the, the, the muscles in your feet and your legs and your, in your core, even in your arms, the more you train them how to walk in the wrong way, 
I mean, your muscle memory takes on the wrong form the longer you walk with your shoes tied together. That's what living with an inner vow is like. You, yes, you can still live, but you're going to develop instincts and responses and habits in your speech, in your behavior, in your relationships. Maybe you can function with them, kind of, but it's not the way it's meant to be. And, and you're going to find that, that the things that God desired and designed begin to atrophy. So canceling, confessing and canceling an inner vow is like untying your shoes after they've been tied together for years and you've been walking like that. So now you can walk normally the way you're intended to walk, but it's going to be difficult. You're going to have to retrain yourself. Your tendency, even with untied shoes, is still going to be to shuffle because that's all you've known how to do. The same thing with canceled inner vows. You, you can cancel them by God's power, by the cross of Jesus Christ, but you're going to have to retrain yourself how to live. There's going to be speech and behavioral patterns and relational patterns that you have to change. Paul talks about this in Colossians where he talks about taking off the old clothes and putting on new garments of Christ-likeness. And so the final step in dealing with inner vows is to ask God for the strength to begin to live the right way, to put on Christ-likeness, to retrain yourself. This is, this is the hard work of discipleship where we retrain and allow others to come alongside of us and, and show us our blind spots and, and these old pieces of clothing that we're wearing so we can put on Christ's likeness. And, and so you can see the prayer that maybe you could pray, Father, would you please make it clear to me what default patterns have been put in place by this inner vow? Would you give me the desire and strength to take them off and put on Christ's likeness? In your grace, would you also raise up other believers who will help me to see what needs to change and give me the humility to listen to them? I pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So when Jesus was at his point of greatest pain, the deepest woundedness he would ever experience, he prayed, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Our tendency is to say, I'm never gonna let that happen again. And what we think will protect us only cuffs us to the hurt that was originally there. But because of the cross of Christ, because he said, Father, they don't know what they're doing, we can break those inner vows. We can be set free, and these things that we've been chained to, that we've been handcuffed to, can be obliterated, and we can live in freedom and Christ-likeness.